Welcome to Digital Hospitality. I am your host, Sean Walcheff. This is a Cali BBQ Media production. Today is a very special day. You would never think that a barbecue media company would be able to interview somebody of the caliber that we get to interview today. Um, as you guys know that have followed this show, we are not just here to talk about digital marketing, digital media. We also talk about sports entertainment. We also talk about entrepreneurship. We also talk about fatherhood, uh, leadership. There's a lot of things that happen in life. And as much as we want to separate personal and business, um, really, there's a blending of both of those. And that's uh, what what we find special about the podcast, the people that have reached out um, to this show. Uh, the reason you listen to podcasts, not just this show, is that you're curious. Um, you want to be better. You want to do better. And hopefully, the guests that we bring on can help you achieve all of those goals. Um, we're grateful that you listen to this podcast. Today, we have Glenn Parker, who played in the NFL for 12 seasons. And uh, I'm fortunate to have met Glenn Parker through a mutual friend, uh, Dave Meltzer, who's my business mentor. You guys have heard us me talk about him multiple times on the podcast. Uh, but nonetheless, I got to talk to Glenn a couple weeks ago. And when I learned that Glenn actually is one of only two players to have lost five Super Bowls, that's a fact that he cannot avoid. But when I asked him about it, Glenn told me something that made me very curious and made me very excited to have him on, which is why I'm so happy to, that you're here today. Glenn, welcome to Digital Hospitality. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Sean. I'm excited to be a part of this. Uh, I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you very much. So I did a little bit of research um, on some statistics to find out what are the odds of a high school player, and I know you did not play in high school, but a high school player getting drafted by an NFL team. And according to the research that I found, it was nine in every 10,000 or 0.09%. So 0.09% of people make it to the NFL that are actually high school seniors. Now you didn't play football in high school. How did you come to be drafted into the NFL? Yeah, so I'm, I'm even a tinier percentage because there's yes. only a few of us that have ever done it this way. Uh, you know, I was always kind of a pretty good athlete growing up. And before high school, I was, you know, I was the kid that could be the best kid on any team that I played. Not, you know, spectacular, but I was good. Well, one of the things about playing sports in high school and particularly football is you have to be a very mature individual. And when everybody kind of hit puberty, I didn't. And I call it the popcorn effect. You know, um, if you have a, a, a pan full of popcorn and you shake it, not every kernel pops at the same time. Some pop early and burn out. A whole bunch pop all about the same time and a few pop right at the end. And I was one of those last little kernels to pop. Uh, <laughs> everybody kind of popped and I was kind of pudgy and short and immature. And um, I just wasn't ready to play. And so I ended up, you know, I surfed in high school. I played volleyball at the beach. I was a member of a, a historical reenactment society. I was kind of a nerd. Uh, all the things I still like doing, <laughs> still the same way. But um, I was happened to be bouncing uh, illegally at a club in, in Huntington Beach, California. And the Rams used to come in a lot. And I had a friend say, hey, I want to go out for football at Golden West. Why don't you come out too? And I was 20 years old at the time. And and uh, I thought, well, you know, I might do that. I gotta, I've got to get to college. I'm, I'm working as a bouncer, which takes me all night. And then I'm trying to go to class. I realized how hard this was going to be because I was two years in and not making any headway. And I, I, 
I just happened to run into some of the Rams outside of that club and they were watching me play basketball, said kind of the same thing to me. So I kind of got this bug in my ear, I should do this. I didn't act on it right away. One of the lessons I've since learned is, you know, I, I think at that time I was a little afraid of failure and now I'm not at all. And this taught me that, you know, I, when I finally took that step, I walked into that coach's office and I walked to the head coach's office. I said, I want to play. He looked at me. He had seen me playing basketball. He says, great, you're going to be an um, offensive tackle. And I thought, oh, I thought I'd go out for DN or tight. He goes, no, I'm the O-line coach. I'm not the head coach. You're going to be an offensive tackle. And that's what happened. I just, you know, away it went. Now, you know, fortuitous, yes, great coaches taught me the game the right way. I had natural athletic ability. Uh, I didn't, uh, didn't have any bad habits. All that kind of transpired to fast track me to the NFL. Now, give me an idea. How, how big were you? I was about, so when I graduated high school, I was 6'5", 280. Um, okay. I had had a growth spurt my last year. You were big. You were you were six five two eighty. You can't just yeah. you didn't just become an offensive lineman by stature. You 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 had the stature. Yeah, I had the stature, but being a, more of a basketball player and surfer, I had I had really good feet. I had great speed. Um, matter of fact, that when I was when I after my first camp where I weighed in at two forty something because I had lost all that baby fat I had on me, I I ran. Uh, um, a low four eight, high four seven forty, oh, wow. 200, almost two hundred fifty pounds at six foot five, six foot six, mm-hmm. and um, but so I had that stature, and I was already big. And by the time I then laid my mind to okay, I'm going to lift weights, I'm going to get ready, um, and I'm still this way. I'm I'm blessed genetically in that if I lift weights more than the minimum, I gain muscle mass really quick. And it was kind of a curse sometimes in the NFL because I also tend to gain fat with it. I'm one of those types. Um, And I've had to really maintain a balance between lifting and exercise to keep the fat down. Uh, But at that age, I didn't need to do it. I just lifted and gained weight fast. I went to 290 in, I don't know, maybe seven or eight months. I put on weight in the muscles because I had never lifted. You know, Mm -hmm. people forget if you've never done something like that, your body gets shocked. It it adapts quickly. It wants the muscle on there because you're out there banging around with big guys and you're lifting weight for the first time, a lot of weight. And I jumped right up the charts. So was it a quick learning curve, understanding, learning the game of football in college and junior college? (laughs) No, it's not. The thing is this, everybody thinks they know the game. You know, fans can sit there. (laughs) And I was one of them. I I was the biggest football fan on the planet. I watch and, you know, yeah, I could say all the things that a fan can say or that an announcer tells you, but it's a whole other ball game. You walk in that room and there's a film being shown and they're talking X's and O's. And you don't speak any of this language, man. You think right. I'm like, speaking Mandarin for sure. Oh my God. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. They're, they're talking your depth, your split, your cadence, uh, boundary feel, blah, you know, and they're going off and on. And then they're making the calls. Hey, we got a swoop here, a scoop here. I'm like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, man. And I'm like, what, what am I talking about? Is it a run or a pass? What's happening? <laughs> And one of the first meetings I'm in, the starting tackle takes the wrong step, and they practiced it over and over and over. And the coach got up, and he took a chair, and he threw it right through the movie screen and into the wall. It broke all over the place. What have I gotten myself into here? Oh, no. Man, this is and crazy. So was this at junior college, or was this at Arizona? This was at junior college. This was just oh, my gosh. 
football. But but that offensive line coach was so good with me because most kids, when they go and they start in Pop Warner, or they start in high school, they learn, I got you. And that's all they know until they're taught the next maybe combo block or something. They're never taught within a full scheme. Yes. And, and I, when I teach high school now, I really try to teach the whole scheme so kids can learn more. Um, he taught me, hey, let's find our safeties. What are they doing? What does defense want to do to us? And what do we want to do to them? So I learned from, from that perspective really fast. Um, I didn't have to unlearn me versus you or why do I do this? I just, I, I just was a blank slate. Uh, I admitted I knew nothing. I didn't speak the language. You know, yeah. they're telling me where Mike is. I'm like, that's not Mike. That's Odell. I know that guy. And wow. but and yeah, I that's, that's Odell. It's <laughs> <laughs> not a Mike linebacker. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no, Mike. That's Odell. Yeah, yeah. It, you know it, that having a coach that could could be a mentor, could be. Um, a translator and understood how to teach the game, even though he was the hardest ass in the world. I love the man. Um, and he did, I mean, I, I, I ran into the perfect storm of head coach, O-line coach and tackles coach. And I, and, and all three guys have changed my life within a matter of two years. I think that's very interesting when you think of, you know, essentially learning the offensive tackle position as a quarterback. I mean, literally, when you go into something not knowing anything, you remove all those biases that you have. And it happens a lot in entrepreneurship and in business when people come in not having been in the restaurant business, but they come in with fresh eyes. So they're ready to learn everything about what you do wrong, but they're also willing to do things differently. I mean, coming in as an athlete to that position, I can see how that made you such a better offensive lineman, especially for your quarterback, but also you're helping your defense too. I mean, you become such a much more valuable asset because of that curiosity and that willingness to say, I don't know anything. So I want to learn everything. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it starts with uh, when you go on your first one-on-one pass or, or when you're a scout player, you know, I'm a, I'm a scout player and I'm getting, I'm getting knocked on my butt a lot, but I'm learning I'm getting better and better. But to be able to just, after a practice, talk to a defensive guy, you know, what did you see me doing right? What did you see me doing wrong? How do I improve? You know, these are guys that all had D1 scholarships, and they were open to talking because that's what junior college ball back then was all about. And so you learn because you're willing to learn. And like you like you just said, the blank slate is everything. And I, and yeah. I, I can't stress that enough to people that – Entering a new situation, do away with the I knows and the yeah, I gotchas and ask the whys and, 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 and the how comes and tell people right off the bat, I know nothing. Treat me like I know nothing. Even though you think I know something, treat me like I know nothing. And when you switch to new teams in the NFL, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to say, okay, you know, yeah, there's a language here. I speak the language, but I don't know what's going on here. I don't know anything about this offense. Let me learn it. You, you can learn so much more so much more rapidly and so much more in depth when you do things that way. It's amazing. I, I, just having the conversation, I think about the things that we talk to our staff, you know, in the restaurant business, we talk to our host, we talk to our servers. We say, you know, the best staff are always going to ask why they're always going to ask why they're going to ask the line cook. They're going to ask the, the dishwasher. They're going to ask anybody that's been there, ask the manager, well, why do we do that? Like, cause there's a reason why, and especially the longer the business has been around, the longer the program has been around, the longer the playbook has been around. There's a reason why you do it. You do it because it works this way and it didn't work the other way. But along the way, coaches, teachers, managers, leaders, we forget that 
just because we know something doesn't mean that the next person knows it, right? Absolutely. And that is so the great teachers start at the beginning and don't assume their, their student knows any, they don't assume anything. So it's up to the student to say, I know nothing. It's also up to the teacher to understand that this kid might have played a lot of football or this kid might've been a great line cook in another restaurant, but he knows nothing about what we do and, and the yeah. reasons we do it and what our, what our, our soul is as a team or our, or what our, our, our reason for being, our reason to that, you know, that, that, the why that is huge for both the student and the teacher. So bring me to the point of your, of draft day. <laughs> well, I had always, for me, it was always, I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to get my degree. I had chosen Arizona. Um, and I was recruited. My, my first offer was USC and that was my dream school going into playing football, but you, you're a little older. Now, all of a sudden, you're 22 when you're getting recruited. Instead of 18, you kind of realize what's important to you. And yeah. I knew what I needed. I needed a, a family atmosphere and all these things. So I chose Arizona. I went through the process. And I didn't even think about the NFL until after my junior year when my brother sent me a clipping from Sports Illustrated uh, saying I was one of the top five offensive tackles. I think I was two. Really? Yeah. Wow. You gotta be kidding me. And so the coach was like, yeah, everybody asked about you here. They all want to know about you. I was like, really? So all of a sudden it became real. And I hadn't thought about it because I was too busy with school. And I ended up saying, okay, I've got one chance to make this thing happen. And that was my best off season, my best summer. My roommates and I stayed all summer in Tucson as you, and here Tucson can be brutal. And being, <laughs> from, being from Huntington Beach, California, I like going yeah. home in the summers yeah. from Tucson. Nope, stay here, run heat a day, acclimate ourselves, get ready for this season. We watched, I watched film on my opponent and I can still tell you this day, he was a phenomenal player. My very first guy I was going to play was Lester Archambault. Uh, ended up playing about seven, eight years in the league. He was a Stanford mm -hmm. DN. And everything I did that whole summer was, I did an extra rep or two for Lester. And I called it the Lester's. I don't care what it was, I'm doing extra. Knowing why I was doing something every day that off season got me to where I could have a great senior year. And when I did, uh, it, it, it was going to happen, and I went to the Senior Bowl, had a good one, went to, the, went to Combine and did well. And come draft day, um, the only downside was I thought I'd go higher. And, of course, that's stupidity on my part. But um, all, the, you know, all the juniors came out there, you kids sliding down. It was the second tackle taken. I was taking the third round. I was only the fourth offensive lineman, I think. Never in the history of the draft before or since has that happened. That's squarely really? in the first round. But that year we all drifted. We all – all the linemen that were taken, the top five or six of us or so, we all had long careers, played a long time, much higher than most of those juniors that came out. For sure. But it was a new thing for the NFL. It was nerve-wracking, not knowing where you're going to go. Because up until that point, I'd had control. I had control of going to Golden West and Arizona. No control of where you're going to go. No control on when you're going to be taken. That is nerve-wracking. That's that anxiety that, that can set in later in your career when you don't know what you're going to do when you're done. But as you're getting drafted, it's excitement, but you should be anxious too. You want to go to the right place. You want to go to the place that has the best setup for you. And um, I was really, really nervous, kept watching guys tick off. And right as the right as the top three rounds were ending, my phone rang. It was Bill Polian calling from the Bills. Wow. I talked to him that day. I talked to John Butler, who later went to the uh, the Chargers. Yep. Adrian Smith later went to the Chargers. That whole yep. group. I got to talk to those that got those guys that day. I flew in the next day and met everybody, and it went from anxiety to relief 
back to anxiety because I'm like, I got to make the team. Yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of work to do here. So tell me about, tell me about making the team in the process of actually, because it's one thing to get drafted. It's to get to the peak moment, but anybody that's accomplished anything, they tell you that that's the easiest part of the journey. The hardest part is staying there is actually proving that you belong. Getting to the NFL is what everyone dreams about, but they don't realize that, you know, it's starting a business is one thing, but getting the, just getting the doors open. Now you actually have, now it's time to play. <laughs> now, now you got to stay in business. Yeah. So, and so, tell me about, about that realization of kind of, Oh so, shit, I made it now. Now you're here. Now, now what? You go through minicamp, you feel good. Because I can tell athletically I'm on par with the best guys on that line. I'm good. And one of the older guys says, you're not, you're not going to worry, dude. You're, you're on. You're a third-round pick. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm worried anyways. Because last year, like year before, two years, a second-round offensive lineman got cut in camp. I'm like, I'm worried. Go to camp. Everything's, you know, it goes along pretty good the first three or four days. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on my door. But it's a, like, I don't know, 1130 at night. It's after curfew. I'm like, oh. oh. What's going on here? That's the hard knocks. The hard knocks knock. I know, I'm thinking it's the Turk, but I'm going. They wouldn't do it at freaking eleven thirty at night. Jeez. Well, I open it up and it's it's Jim Kelly, it's Thurman Thomas, it's Will Wolford and Ken Hall. And they're like, "Come on, let's go. You're driving." And they take them. You know, I've got to drive them out. We go to a bar. We have some beers. We come back. I said, "I think I got it." If they if they feel good enough. About it, <laughs> I've been go. baptized by, well, by, by the offense. Um, and then, matter of fact, Will Wolfer won there. Now that I think about it, because I ended up starting at left tackle that that first few games because he was holding out, and uh-huh. ended up being a starter right away as a rookie and and playing almost all the games. And and at left tackle, at starter uh, at left tackle, actually left tackle to start the season, then right guard from there on out. And, okay. Um, and I kind of switched back and forth most of my career at Buffalo. But what was interesting is when you have that realization about okay. You don't have time to think after you make the team because that next game's coming and you have this cycle in the NFL. And for people who don't know it, you know, you play the game, you get to celebrate till midnight, you wake up, you watch that film, you get your corrections out, figure out all the corrections we had to make on things I did wrong, mm-hmm. get a day off where you better be getting your lift in and you better be getting your treatment in. And then you're back in game planning for the next week and it all gets installed. So everything you just put in is gone. That game plan changes every week. Plays change every week based on the defense. A lot of your communication, you'll have new plays. There's so many things that you get caught up into it. And as you get older in the NFL, you talk about when's he going to swallow his tongue. A rookie, they hit that rookie wall, man. It's like they're week 10 or 12 because you've never played that many games. So you kind of, you get in this rut. And I remember I kind of hit mine around Thanksgiving. Like, man, we still got four or five weeks to go. (laughs) We're doing well. We're going to blast. And you got to get a reset somehow. And you do that. And, but the realization ends when we get to the Super Bowl, we lose the Super Bowl. So your first year you went to the Super Bowl. Yeah, I went to the Super Bowl my first four years in the NFL. First four years in the NFL. So would the season that you started, was that when the no huddle, no huddle started in in Buffalo? Really? Oh yeah, so you were part of the whole. You were part of the whole brand new rollout of the offense. I sure was. So what they did is in '88 in a, in a playoff game, they were having trouble. I think with the Bengals, so they went to a no huddle, and they talked about we should just do this all the time. Uh-huh. And in '90, we did that. We we. It was interesting too, because one of the things about that season, and let me finish just for a second. It's when I when we lost that Super Bowl, I woke up. And normally you say, okay, I'm going to take some time off. And I did. I took a little time, but I didn't ever take time off from working out because I thought to myself, I got to make the team. Yeah. And I'm a starter and I got to make the team. And it was so much in my mindset that failure any one day leads to failure 
totally that I kept thinking I was going to get cut any day. And I, and uh, a matter of fact, a friend, when I retired, said, Glenn, one thing that struck me is until your 12th year, you were sure you were getting cut on Monday. Yeah. It's just the way I, I prepared myself that I'm going to get cut unless I do everything possible. So that's, that's, how that, you- I mean, that, that goes to the heart of why you lasted for 12 years and at such an elite position. I mean, that's the thing that as a fan, why I love Philip Rivers because of his nunc copy attitude. It's now I begin every single day, whatever happened before today is a new day. I have to start again. It's Mamba mentality. It's the Kobe Bryant, no matter what it's because of 4am. That's, that's the time for me to get better. And because of your mentality, you believed that you were going to get cut. I mean, I mean, you were doing your Lester's. Like you, you knew that there was someone coming for your job. And if, if it wasn't, I'm sure in your career, you had many people, many rookies that came on, free agents. And because they didn't have the same attitude as you, they didn't last. You know, right? and, and that's something I talk about a lot is so – too often, and, and it just showed up again in the news, and I laugh because it's something that I've preached for years. Bill Belichick said, talked about Cam Newton and how he's willing to work on the things he's not good at because most people always want to work on their, their best things. I always worked on what my weakness was, always, um, never on what I did well. And every year, they, every year they bring in some guy who's going to beat you out, and and. I would find out, okay, what's this guy really good at? And I'd have, and I'd work with him on that. And I would try to get myself up to his level on that. Almost never did they say, look at me and say, what are you really good at? And try to, and try to get to me. So what I was doing is taking their time, sapping their time from them to get better. And they weren't doing the same for me because I would have gladly helped them. uh, But they didn't do that. And that allowed me many times to take a guy who, Everybody swore I was going to take my job, and by middle of camp, he's out. He's gone. That's so interesting. Um, And that's just a way to be a parasite a little bit. Say, what does he do well? I want to learn from that guy and offer it back, but so often people won't take it back. Well, it's, it's interesting. We had uh, Jim Trotter. He's a close friend of mine and be, been on the podcast, worked for NFL Network, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, was a beat, beat reporter for the Chargers forever. He was telling us a story. Basically, he was at training camp with a veteran, and he was a veteran, veteran cornerback, and he was working on what he didn't do well. But everyone at camp was like, he's getting smoked. He's, this is it. He's at the end of his road. Instead of writing what he wanted to write, which was exactly that, that, you know, maybe this is the end of the road for this cornerback, he went to some veteran players and asked, you know, what's going on? And those veteran players said he's working on what he doesn't do well. So that once season comes, he will be better. And yeah. sure enough, that was the best season that that cornerback ever had for the Chargers. Yeah, and I'm like, I'll always remember that story because that's literally what happens the people that are the best the michael jordans how many times do people say michael jordan couldn't play defense you brings me that the the, the story i'll use i'm a little older julius irving i knew i i worked with julius irving's ball boy um al Troutwig of nbc sports done tour de france olympics all that he was a ball boy at the nets when julius irving was there and he tells the story about dr j how a news article came out saying he couldn't do a jump he couldn't shoot a jumper very well Every day, 1,000 jumpers after practice, just he and Al Troutwig passing the ball to him, 1,000 jumpers every day for the entire season to prove that he could shoot a jumper. Wow. And that is, that is the mentality that, that takes you beyond I'm an okay player, I'm a good player, I'm a suffice player to 
I'm a steadfast player on, on this team. I'm here every day and I'm part of it. And if you asked me to go back to 90 and the start of the no huddle, what made it different is we learned how to practice as a team. I think we were pretty talented. I mean, I was along for the ride a little bit as a rookie, but I'll never forget that the week prior to a game against the Denver Broncos early in the year, we were, there were some problems. We just, we weren't in sync and that game showed it. We all, we were getting beat, but in the middle of that game, we scored 17 points in about a minute and 50, I think is what it was. We wow. scored down, they fumbled, we scored off it. And we had a, uh, I think a field goal blocked and we, you know, kicked a field goal off or something like that. It was amazing turnaround in that game. And the week after that, our practices, which the prior weeks had lasted two and a half hours or better. We were down to an hour and 40 minutes on the field total. Really? Shortest practices in the NFL because we weren't making mistakes because we were focused on every single down a purposeful practice. Meaning, I'm not doing, and this goes back to what we just talked about working on what you're not good at. Is if I'm in one on one pass, I'm I need to work on something purposeful every t- rep I get. It's not just simply to do a rep. When you're in individual drill and you're running over bags, most guys just want to get through it. No, why are we doing this this drill? Yeah. What mindful purpose can I have to get better doing that drill? And that is how teams tighten their belts, how they get better, how they get streamlined, and how they win a lot of games. And I learned that firsthand that 1990 season with that no huddle attack and the problems we had for a week or so and how we we flipped the switch. And from there on out, we were unstoppable. I mean, do you think that the no huddle, part of it is just the communication that you guys developed a new way to communicate on the fly with obviously your leader, Jim Kelly, but doing it in a way that was cohesive that hadn't been done before. I mean, it molded you guys into a unit that was literally unstoppable. It really did. And it was on the fly a little bit. You know, we went from, you you go from, we don't have our, we have a few plays in the package and we're going to add more to very shortly. We had our entire offense in and we were, we, Jim Kelly could give us a sign like huddle, huddle or whatever. And then for his receivers, they knew by his hand signal what he was doing. And to us, he's giving verbals. And it's as simple as um, we had a word, a code word that meant something to us for every single play and which direction it was going. Now it's commonplace. But rather than use the verbal, they're using pictures for these kids. Um, But he did it on the fly. And when we, I say it was, it was, it was done haphazardly. It's because as we added a play, we had to come up for a name for the play. Sure. So we just kind of all be talked about it until it sounded right. And, you know, like for instance, in, this was the easy one for us. Our, our base run is what was called ride 16 or 17. That's an uh, a off, off tackle guard run with Thurman and ride is how the quarterback holds the ball, which is now very common in zone reads. That's that mesh. And, we had to come up with it. We're like, well, we run it all the time. It's our bread and butter. Well, there we go. It's bread and butter. Bread for the right because it's got an R in it, butter left. Bread, bread, bread. We're running 16. Butter, butter, butter. We're running 17. Well, then that's how it evolved. And yeah. it just took off from there. And it's easy when you only have 53 guys, you know, half of which are offense, all pretty smart because you have to be in order to play in the NFL. And the driving force is success. No one's there just to do something. We're there for success. So you can really take off. What was the lowest moment out of those five Super Bowls for you? Well, I think probably the last one walking off, I think it knew it was over. I, yeah. I, I wanted to play one more year, but I knew our, I knew that the team didn't have salary cap room to work the way they wanted to. Um, 
I knew the odds just of getting back are, you know, because you, you do it for four years, then you're gone. You know, you don't get back for six. And most of my friends had never been in one. Yeah. My, none of my teammates had been in one. None of very few of my teammates at Kansas City had been in one. And so you realize how rare it is. And you're 34, 35, you're walking off, you've just gotten beat, you put everything into it, season's over, so you, you've got a natural adrenaline suck anyways going on. And to realize on top of that, that uh, I'm getting old, I'm, I'm, yeah. I might have a year or two left of this, and what are the odds of getting back to one? And it, that just, that is a, that is the lowest of the level. And what, what, what was the mindset, what was the mind shift that made you change, that made you start to appreciate the fact that you actually got to do something that most most people that 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 play with a football that are lucky enough to play in high school, let alone the smaller amount that are lucky enough to play in college, the even smaller amount that are lucky enough to play in the NFL for more than two and a half, three seasons. Uh, I mean, you played in twelve. Five of those, you got to the pinnacle, to the to the top of the top. When 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 did that realization actually come to be part of who you are now post post career? Well, I think. Part of it happened after Buffalo because you realize how hard four was in a row. Um, most of it happened as I was out in the world and, and so many back then, of course, you're the laughing stock, you know, when it's all over. Now we look back and go, wow, Buffalo, then nobody will ever do that again. But what it is, is you have to, I think you have to be really grateful for what you have. And I was so grateful that I had a team around me, a constant team during those years of great people, really at the pinnacle of our success. It's, it's, it's as if someone, if someone gave you a bouquet of roses, there's 12 roses, and five of them were almost perfect and not quite, would you be upset? You wouldn't look and go, well, I don't have a perfect rose in this batch. No, they're still beautiful roses. They're still amazing. And five of them are as close to perfect as I can get. You know, there's only so many perfect diamonds. And the I was given the opportunity to be around great players, great friends, reached almost the pinnacle, and all those good times will never be outweighed by the fact I lost a game. And the fact is, 31 teams every year don't make it. So why should the person who comes in second feel worse than the guy who came in last? I had a chance. If they came to me right now and said, hey, we would like you to play, you're only going to give up five or six reps, but you got a 1% chance of winning the Super Bowl. Because I can only do five. I could do one rep right now. (laughs) (laughs) But if I could get five, I'd take them. And you got a 1% chance or less of winning this game in the Super Bowl, you're going to go down with six losses. I'm in. Count me in. It's all good. It's all the good. You can't to dwell on a, you know, it's, it's, how do you say it? It's like, it's, it's like dwelling on a bug that's flattened on the front of your Lamborghini. Don't you want to dwell on the Lamborghini? Why Lamborghini? You know, it's a scratch. It's nothing. Move on. Um, people make too much of a body of work that isn't near perfect when it's that close. And I can't, I have too many good memories to let that happen. Yeah. Well, I, I, Completely agree. Founding yourself in gratitude is probably something that allows you to continue to give back in the way that you do to all the students. And when you go and give speeches to, you know, current and current, current athletes, as well as athletes that are going into retirement. And I think it's very important to carry that message on because it is tough. Talk, talk about your transition from being a professional athlete, then to your broadcast journalism, and then to what you're doing now. 
Yeah, that, you know, that's one of the things, like you said, everybody sees the the opening of the doors. They don't see all the work that went to opening that restaurant. Correct, yes. That's broadcast. You know, I at, at Buffalo, I, I did a radio show, and, you know, you're sitting on a fold-out table in the chip aisle, and people are coming <laughs> by, you give them an autograph, you have your show. That's not glamorous. That's not the big time. You know, in Kansas City, me and Will Shields are driving in, in the pitch black across the Kansas Plain to go to a high school football game for free for cable. Because we <laughs> Correct. Get in we your reps in. Yeah, yeah get your reps in. And so when I retired and, and being at the Giants certainly helped. I got a lot of shows and, and, and a lot of uh, uh, exposure there. But I came back to Arizona where we had decided we were going to live post-retirement. And I, st- I did like three or four games for Arizona. And I was lucky. Uh, uh, one of the producers at NBC at 30 Rock um, remembered me from the year before and said, hey, I want to give you an audition here. I think you might be good for this show we're going to do. So I flew in and I got the gig and it was myself and Michael Irvin along with Al Trotwig on uh, the AFL on NBC Sunday Sports Day. And I did that for four years. It was absolute hoot. And so I transitioned pretty fast, but I transitioned over the course of 12 years. It wasn't a transition that was, I'm done with football. Now what do I do? It was, I prepared myself for 12 years for that transition. Um, And that's the fear being cut every day. (laughs) Better have something else going. and it's also, you know, people, I think, get there, there's very few overnight successes in life. And and I was I prepared myself very, very hard for that. And I worked on my weaknesses every year. And I, I, I set up my schedule in the broadcast world like a football schedule. You know, in the offseason, I'm going to work on these things. I'm going to game plan for the coming season. And then week to week, you're, you're game planning week to week. And just that's how I was able to do that for 15 or 16 years before I transitioned. Did you have any mentors that helped you along the way? Absolutely. Um, you know, first and foremost, Al Troutwig was as good as they come. He, uh, as a desk person, as a play-by-play, a, being able to simply have a word or say something um, that he knows where to take you and how to lead you. And that's that's a huge one. Having great producers. I had Sam Flood at NBC. Understanding, you know, too often young producers want to put a sentence in some guy's ear while he's talking and, and it's impossible for that. You can't do both. Just one word. Understanding how to communicate with a minimum of words is huge in television because you don't have much time to talk kind of like a quarterback would to an offensive line (laughs) (laughs) don't tell me a bunch of stuff just get just give me what i need give me what i need to know here yeah and you you got it down right that's exactly what it is and so those those two were really um important and instrumental in me then having the ability to go wherever i went and not worry about my play-by-play or my producer because i already knew from working with them what they were thinking and what the director wanted and how to kind of use that to my advantage moving forward. So from radio to broadcast television, what did you enjoy the most out of all of those different experiences? You know, radio is the best because you have the most time to, to, to go on and let your opinion be known. It's, it's, it's the, you know, radio is dying. Podcasts are killing them. And there's probably a reason long format. You don't have to wait for ads. All those things happen. Well, I loved radio for that reason is you actually got a chance to express yourself and, and put an entire thought out there Well, you don't get that chance in television. Um, even at the studio show, you have one quick bite, got to get it in, get it out for the next guy before we go to a break. So radio is ultimately more enjoyable because it's more a sense of who you are rather than a sense of what they want said. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's more the long form podcast allows you to develop deeper thoughts, have a conversation. Sometimes it's not just a scripted, oh, we're going to ask this question and we're going to get to this topic. It's the conversation is going to go where it's going to go. Yeah. And if you notice, sports TV is so different than it was 15, 20 years ago. It used to be interview shows and highlights, but those interviews are gone because athletes have decided I like Twitter. I like Instagram because I get to tell my story. I don't have to go through a reporter. And that that's the reason there's been this huge upheaval in, in sports television. Now it's now a lot of guys arguing and it's no longer the athletes being interviewed and really giving their piece because they, they realize I don't have to be edited anymore. I can be who I want with social media and get my message right to the fans. That's very true. Tell me about the work that you're doing with the university. Well, I'm, I, I was brought on a few years ago to help in fundraising um, in the principal gifts office up here. And I absolutely love it because I deal with so many alumni and it still gives me a chance to, um, I mean, I get to all the events, which is fun because I am an alumni of the university and I get to deal with people on all spectrum of our alumni from, uh, because I'm not, an, I'm not in athletics, because I work with the whole university, I get to deal with I mean, world-renowned physicians and cardiac surgeons and brain and people that do things with genetics and brain that I can't even comprehend half of what they're saying, but I love to try to learn from them. So I get this whole, and yeah, I deal with athletes too. And, and, and others, I, I absolutely love the feeling of camaraderie around a university. It's much like a team again. That's what I was looking for. I wanted something more team oriented and it's given me the time to pursue my next passion, which is, is helping coach mentor how to lift young men up and not just men, everyone, obviously, but within the realm of sports, young men up to understand um, what their responsibilities are, but what their possibilities are. Because that's what it really comes down to. Kids see sports as this way out rather than seeing sports as a lesson that can teach them everything they need to know about life. And that's so important. You know, I think um, as you get older, you start realizing all along, I knew the combination to the lock. I just didn't know what order the numbers went in. And if I could have figured that out or worked on that faster, I'd have been more successful. And I try to just get kids to understand that they possess that combo. They just got to figure out what order they want to put them in. Tell me about uh, Glenn as as a dad and as a father, how you've learned how to be a dad along the way. Wow. (laughs) I have four kids. You know, you start off, one of the reasons I didn't go into coaching right away and I I was asked to in the NFL is, hey, listen, um, I got four kids. You guys never see your kids. I don't want to be like that. I want to be, I want to be a dad. Um, I think my, I think my kids would tell you, my daughters always say I have a better sense of fashion than my wife because I'm the one that always. (laughs) (laughs) Because why? Um, My wife's just not into that. It's not her thing. (laughs) Um, and I just love, you know, my girls, it was, I, when you're a dad and you, you know, everybody says you want boys. Well, I have three girls and a boy, but I never cared. I had these two beautiful daughters. I didn't care if we had any more kids. My wife really wanted a boy and we, we got blessed with twins. Um, but I wanted to be the best girl dad I could be. And that involves, you know, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to have a tea party with you when you're younger, whatever we're going to do, because I want you to understand what a man treats what a man should treat you like and your mother like, because that's, that's the mistake that happens so often is girls don't understand what a good father is because they don't have one or they, or they don't have a father at all. So I wanted to show them that. And then once uh, they got into sports, I had a real tough time because 
sports is my milieu. Sports is what I do. And how do I coach two little girls in sports? Um, not that I ever wanted to actually coach their sports, but how did I, how do I deal with them in these sports? I didn't want to coach them. And I had a great conversation with Mike Candram, who is the, he was the Olympic softball coach. He's the university of Arizona softball coach. He's won many national titles. He had a great way of putting it for me. He said, Glenn, you have to realize that the difference between coaching girls and boys is this boys have to win to feel good about themselves and girls got to feel good about themselves to win. He goes, I give the girls a chance to fix their bows, to talk, to get all their gossip or whatever they want to talk about out. And I want them to feel great going on the field because then I know they're going to play well. And I liken it like this, two boys on a soccer field, they hate each other. Maybe one, cheated with the other's girlfriend. I don't know. They're running down, but one's open. That ball will get past that boy to score because they're going to win. Yeah. Not with girls. That ain't happening with girls. Yeah. That ball's never going over to that person. No way. I hate her. So understanding that dynamic helped me with my daughters so much of how to not insert myself in their sports life and just be a dad. That's, I think that's a, I mean, most of my friends, I, I have a three-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter and, you know, I have friends that their kids are a little bit older and friends that have kids that are even older. And always the thing I ask the most is how do you, even though it's a sport, you're, you want your kids exposed to as many sports as possible because you learn so many things from your coaches that you might never learn in the classroom. Um, you learn the camaraderie, you learn how to hustle, you learn to be on time. There's so many different things that are the value of sports, but how as a dad, do you let the coach be the coach and not try to go, I can coach better than that coach. <laughs> I took a lesson from my own parents and growing up the way I did, you know, when, when you take your daughters to a, a soccer tryout or a swim tryout, all the parents are there, they're watching, um, they sit and they, they're intent. I had a check pinned to my shirt and I rode my bike down to the field and joined. My parents didn't, you know, they didn't walk with me. I said, okay, here's what we're doing. I would take them, sign them up and leave. And when they went to practice, I left them and I left. I never sat and watched practice because I thought the one thing I noticed was a common denominator of kids that were a little older, that were really good and being pressed is mom and dad sat there and watched and they got, they talked the whole way back to the car, what they could have done better they coached him to the car. They coached him in the car. That's not my place. Unless I'm the coach, it's not my place. My place to be dad and just let her talk and have fun and do whatever. And that was the way I handled it. I'm not, no, I don't know that that's the best way, but in order to not involve myself in that type of thing was to do that, to not be involved in practice, not be involved in, in anything but game day and watching them and hoping they had fun. And, wow. uh, the only that's, thing I ever very, that's a very powerful statement. I mean, because that takes you knowing yourself and me knowing myself, just you saying that it makes so much sense because I know what kind of personality I have. I couldn't help but think that even though I know nothing about soccer and my son's out there possibly playing soccer, I would go, well, maybe I can learn how to play soccer and I can do a better job or I can give him some tips <laughs> instead of just letting my son go play soccer, right? Let him go play. Let the and, soccer coach be the soccer coach. Exactly. And, you know, and that's, that is, I had to learn that. I think we all do. And, you know, it's, it's one of the, the only thing I ever talked to, I might say, Hey, body language while they're on the field. Cause I, I understand that is more powerful. That's that yeah. unconscious uh, communication, but never about the sport, never about 
ex- only one I've coached at any level is my son because he came to me for football his freshman year and wanted to work. He wanted to coach. And I said, well, this is different now. I, I can't be dad. Yeah. He was good <laughs> this with is it. different. <laughs> yeah. And he was good with it. If you still got what you're signing line, up for, son. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you still got to walk the line, but you, uh, but as long as that's drawn and I was lucky, my, my, uh, my best friend in the world was a coach to his son and I was the son's mentor so that the dad didn't have to um, try to be a mentor and coach at the same time. And it's, I've, I've known the kid since he was born. I still mentor him. He's, he's hoping for a shot in the NFL right now. And that's important. And so I always had that for my son too, since I was a coach. So you got to, my, my buddy would call him all the time. And say, what's going on? What's the real story? What's, you know, yeah. let him go that and get it off. Like that dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. So what is your what are your plans now for building your speaking career and getting out and, um, you know, really building this message? Because it's such a powerful message that I think it resonates so much from somebody like you that has the life experience that you do. And it's it's so important for young men to hear that. Well, you know, I want to expand from beyond the football and athletics realm, obviously, that's that's number one thing to do. And uh, I'm 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 picking brains. I'm finding mentors. And and right now, David Meltzer is, is helping me. He's being a mentor to me. And uh, I know we, you and I talked last week. And I said, hey, I want to pick your brain on on how to do some of the things you're doing. And that's what I plan on doing in the next uh, couple of months. Is besides evolving and expanding speaking to more groups and. And, and different types of groups is to start my own podcast where I can go long form where um, it's about uplifting messages, not just in the sports world. I have so many people I know outside of sports, guys that, you know, uh, federal agents that have written books and, and Navy SEALs and guys that can bring it, it, not every message has to be the same, but within the vein, it's that uplifting and how do we make ourselves better human beings, better men, better fathers. Yeah, through lessons and stories. And I think that's the most powerful gift that I've found just by podcasting. It's it's not about how many people are listening. It's the people that are listening. If they trust me enough to bring on people like you um, that can share your story, that can have a po- positive impact on them as a father, them as a leader. Um, most of them haven't played in the NFL, but definitely the stories that you've resonated here with us it's, it's having that open perspective. It's having that willingness to say that you don't know something when you go into a situation. I mean, that's so powerful, no matter where you are in your career. I mean, my grandfather was a medical doctor and he ended up developing real estate, but he only did that because he was willing to go and take real estate classes as a 65 year old man that knew nothing. And the people in the class, they made fun of him. What's this, you know, elderly gentleman, you know, there's no reason for him to be in real estate class. What's he doing? But then he went on to spend another 20 years developing real estate, but it's that curiosity. It's that willingness to be humble. It's that willingness to have that blank slate. Um, I really, really appreciate that. And I can't wait for you to start your podcast. I can't wait for you to start producing your content. Um, How can people get in touch with you if they'd like to Easiest way is obviously Twitter. I'm at KCGP62, and that's pretty okay. simple. Cancel Glenn Parker, and uh, and six two is the number. And then I'm on Facebook, and that's easy to find me. LinkedIn, I'm out there as well. University of Arizona Foundation, and on Instagram, Glenn five two zero five. And I've just picked up Instagram because I wanted to keep it real private uh, because I I'm of my age. I'm naturally distrustful of social media, but getting much better. So I'll start having more content on on uh, both Instagram and LinkedIn as we move forward and. Uh, yeah, things like you'll start to see more of me as I start putting it out. 
That's great. Well, we've, we very much look forward to it. Um, we're going to put all those links in the show notes. Glenn, we really appreciate your time. We look forward to watching you uh, begin the, ne- the next chapter of your well, life. I appreciate it, Sean. Thanks for giving me this opportunity. Anytime you want to talk some more, I'd love to come on. I, 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 I love the restaurant biz. I'd love to pick your brain on that too. So anytime, anytime, you know that. I can't wait to stop and see your restaurant. I'm through San Diego every other weekend. I look forward to that. We'll see you in San Diego. Yes, sir. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Glenn.